0: Welcome to the CRISPR revolution. This is CRISPR cuts, a podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. Take a break and join us as we guide conversations with an expert CRISPR cast about this cutting edge science. Thank you for tuning in to CRISPR cuts today. Our guest is Andrew Porterfield, a scientific marketing consultant, science journalist, and all around science communicator. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Yeah,
0: maybe if you don't mind start off by telling us a little bit about your background, who you are, where you're from, and what kind of work you're doing.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm originally from New Jersey, just outside of Philadelphia, and I've been living in California for about 28 years. But I started out thinking I wanted to be a doctor, and then got a bachelor's degree in physical anthropology and kind of natural sciences from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia and realized that a career in clinical medicine was really not for me and dabbled a bit in working in a laboratory as a bench scientist as a lab technician after i got my ba and kind of realized that wasn't for me either so went out west and started to combine work with in journalism and once some of my editors discovered that I knew what a carbon atom was, they told me, well, hey, how would you like to write any health or environmental or science articles that come out? And I said, sure, and the rest has been history. I've been variously a uh, journalist, public relations officer, university or nonprofit nonprofit officer uh, doing public relations for academic institutions and done marketing for Everything from startups to huge multinational pharmaceutical corporations.
2: That sounds really great. We have actually been reading some of your articles, especially those on Genetic Literacy Project, and one interesting topic has definitely been how CRISPR is being used in agriculture or how it is being used to improve our food supply. So today we thought we would like to chat more about this topic and find out more about how CRISPR is impacting our future food, right? So let's start with one of the articles which you had written about food wastage and how CRISPR could help in that. So could you talk more to that?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, that was when I wrote back last summer. And it, it started out with the announcement that a uh, JR Simplot, which is a uh, a firm in Idaho, that does work with the genetics of potatoes, and it introduced one type, well, actually two types of potatoes, one using RNA interference and another one using CRISPR-Cas9 that might be able to extend the shelf life and prevent browning of an average potato. This addresses a problem with food wastage, so if you could find a way to somehow or other control the browning and rotting of potatoes alone, I think I had a number where it said you could prevent 400 million pounds of bruised and brown potatoes from being thrown away every year. And food waste is a huge problem. I think the Food and Agricultural Organization estimated that about a third of food produced for humans is either lost or wasted. Lost can mean It's somewhere in the agricultural process from the farm, something happened, pests, fungus, what have you, something for internal browning has happened so that the food can no longer be delivered. And then waste is something that happens more in developed industrialized countries where literally it's just thrown away post-marketing. Both are serious enough problems, especially when you still got a number of uh, areas of the world where people are suffering from famine, all the way up to what we call, euphemistically, food insecurity. So really, any way, if there is a gene involved with the process by which a food product sustains itself, resists pests, if you can alter that gene somehow, okay. that's one way that genetics can be involved with food production and agriculture. And CRISPR has been honestly revolutionary, I think because of its, one, its simplicity. Um, how easy it is to use but also it's more cisgenic personality if you will. You know, you're not taking in a foreign uh, strip of DNA from another species but instead you're tweaking, you're creating a, something as small as a SNP or deleting an entire gene or uh, or ideally inserting another gene or another variant of a gene from the same species and the hope, the hope is that that eliminates some of the Societal and regulatory objections that people have had with transgenics—you know, typical what people think of when they hear
0: the word GMO. Yeah, right. So when you're using CRISPR, for example, you're not introducing anything new to a species. You're you're basically just engineering a sequence that might already be present, but just instead of doing it over years or decades with breeding, you're just making it, that process more mm-hmm. efficient using like new technologies.
1: Right. And, you know, transgenics also improves, has imp- was an improvement over traditional breeding techniques because even in transgenics, you can do in one generation or two generations, if you cross, if you back cross what would take, you know, maybe 30, 40 years, depending on the growth cycle and reproductive cycle of a plant with traditional breeding techniques. You know, CRISPR just, it, not, it eliminates some of the problems that come up with transgenics because of the, some of the effects of introducing another gene, although honestly, a lot of transgenics have been conducted and they work and they're safe. But their CRISPR is also more precise, so you reduce the possibility of off-target effects of inadvertent genetic tweaks somewhere in the genome where this is actually hitting much closer to the source and you can do you know, literally changing you know a few base pairs, maybe a few hundred base pairs, enough to really precisely aim at at your target uh, genomic sequence.
0: I wanted to ask about the browning of different um, like fruits and vegetables like you mentioned. For the potatoes is the browning related to the food actually rotting or is it just kind of making it appear in such a way that like you know most people don't want to buy it?
1: It depends. It can be both. I think in a number of them it, it you start uh, having productions of certain chemicals, uh, certain molecules that add to browning, and it may be an appearance effort. There are issues with some potatoes with acrylamides, which can cause a, a number of health problems that eliminate their production and their expression, and that can help preserve the food and, and keep it safe that way. So it really depends on what your target gene was designed to do. But yeah, I mean, both are issues, and that's where you have more food loss, the stuff is rotting and it's just gone, but if food waste, people just, it, it's ugly, like it, we throw it away. In a way, the net effect kind of becomes the same. People won't eat it. They won't buy it. You know, it's wasted.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, you can't get back the resources that you put into making the food, so it's not only is the food gone, but the, the cost spent to make it is, you know, is, is also down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I was just asking, because there's like the idea about like stopping foods from browning is not just in potatoes. We, we saw something a couple of years ago at Beta where Beta where everyone at the meeting was given these non-browning apples. Right. And then I think the same thing is also in mushrooms. Oh, yeah. in, mm-hmm. in some of those. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's a mix between you don't want your food to look less desirable. But yeah, in some cases, it's really about the chemicals being produced. I think for the for like potatoes, I, I think I remember hearing that, like maybe it was the acrylamide you mentioned, but when you cook it up, it becomes, it can become a neurotoxin, right? So it's like, yes, yeah, really right. dangerous. Yeah.
2: So one thing is obviously at qualities like this non-browning or even disease resistance, uh, which can actually save plants and help reduce wastage of food or even actually save them in the long term. So... One interesting example was of uh, researchers working on cacao plants right to save uh, chocolate in the future because these crops are uh, falling to pests or even they might face drought in the future so this is like one angle and then there's of course another aspect where crispr or genetic engineering is being used to simply uh, enhance food to make it look better more nutritive and those type of uh, qualities which are actually just making it even better for better as a product so what do you think of examples like that and uh, can you anything of the top of your mind where you can think of um, where crispr has been used for better nutrition in food
1: yeah i mean the chocolate one's kind of fun i mean, I mean basically anything where you have a gene that's expressing vitamin production or can enhance, you know, say, the fiber content, if it's producing a protein or even regulating the production of a vitamin or some other nutrient, if you can edit that in or edit even the regulatory sequence to enhance certain functions, it's all fair game. What a lot of people don't realize is that, say vitamin C now is largely produced by inserting the genes that express the proteins for vitamin C into a corn stalk. Mm -hmm. And that's typical transgenics. There's no CRISPR. I don't know where you would could find a better plant to produce vitamin C that might be natural. You might be able to enhance the production of a grapefruit or an orange or something like that that already produces the vitamin, but all of those things, are fair game. They could just about anything you think about that's being done with traditional breeding or possibly with transgenics, CRISPR could probably do and maybe even do it better. There's been talk about genetic edited animals either. And you know, why should that be any different? If you've got a protein and you've got a gene expressing it, CRISPR can help you more precisely edit. I think the insertion of whole genes is a little behind just tweaking an existing gene or deleting the function of a deleterious or harmful gene right now because of stop codons, entrance codons, regulatory sequences, and all that that go into inserting, you know, what's the average gene like 1500 base pairs, something like that, uh, and not including the regulatory and stop and start sequences. So that's a little farther down the road, but it's not out of the realm of possibility.
0: Yeah, so we mostly talked about how to sort of save good food from going bad and how to make good food better. Another idea or another sort of aspect of CRISPR and agbio that's really interesting is how to allow you know allow farmers to grow food in places where they otherwise would not be able to, right? Like with this, the whole world is facing climate change. The weather is just unpredictable. There's droughts. There's heat waves. How is CRISPR impacting that part of farming? Like making crops like just sort of more, um, like I guess, compatible with different climates.
1: Yeah, I mean, it goes back to if you can find something that would help plant adapt to drought conditions, other chemical issues, higher salinity rate, a number of those things, then, yeah, in fact, there's a lot of interest in uh, developing countries, not only in transgenics, but also in, in CRISPR techniques for just that purpose. One of the more interesting ones is Somewhat related to that, was a story I just wrote on uh, wildfires, and no one looked at it directly. But there's a woman at, in Montana who's been looking at some of the genes that are involved in pine trees, especially western lodgepole and ponderosa pine trees, and how they react to the pine bark beetle. And there's a genetic circle with uh, where the pine bark beetle kind of creates its own microenvironment within the bark of the tree. And that renders can render the tree well eventually to kill it but it can there are differences between trees that can resist the pine bark beetle a little bit more than others and those differences appear to be genetic so once you you have that you might be able to keep the pine bark beetle from coming in and killing some of these trees and that may make them more resistant to wildfires it doesn't keep the heat down but it as Things get warmer, the effects of global climate change start affecting, whether well, they already have these forests in the American West, the idea is like this is a possibility. You know, they could also do traditional breeding techniques, but again, trees, their life cycle is, reproductive cycle is pretty long. So this is an interesting application.
2: Right. And another interesting thing is, so now that we know that CRISPR is being used for you know, various applications for making food better and just in general improving conditions for us. Uh, As scientists and science communicators, this is probably more obvious or we would probably assume it to be a fair game. But how is the regulatory landscape and does it seem as simple to just have this food out in the market or is there the major barrier there to convince governments to actually let this food pass through? Mm
1: Yeah, the regulatory front is really kind of split right now. In fact, even in the United States, you're starting to see a split coming because there are two, in the United States alone, there are two agencies responsible for regulating food, depending on the supply, the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. The USDA so far has said that it's not going to regulate any gene-edited products. Now, both of these agencies do regulate transgenics to some degree. So they do it in slightly different ways, but they do. The FDA, however, is saying that they do plan on regulating gene editing, but it's not clear how that's going to work. So they've promised more innovative and nimble rules for CRISPR and these types of technologies, but we haven't seen anything yet. Whereas the USDA says, nope. We consider this unregulated. It's not a pest that's being introduced or the source of a pest that's being introduced into a, a new product, so we're not gonna pay attention to it. Move over to Europe, and Europe at very first was silent on CRISPR, but then last July, the Court of Justice of the EU, the European Union, ruled that gene editing was exactly the same as existing transgenics and GMO. And though so which essentially stops the use of CRISPR on anything in for member nations of the European Union. Now, that's the Court of Justice. The European Parliament could change its mind later. Other host countries can also do their own thing. So Europe has always de- the developed countries Europe has always provided the most resistance to um, these kind of genetic changes I understand Japan has said that it would not apply genetic technology regulations to CRISPR and to gene editing and I think Canada Canada and I think Australia Are saying that we're not going to regulate it, but New Zealand is saying that it's going to so and that Russia has banned all types of uh, uh, genetic modification with the sole exception of, for research use within within the Russian Republic. And that's a whole nother. <laughs> so it's really a mixed bag out there right now. It doesn't look like as uniform opposition as what was generated by, um, quote, GMOs. In fact, the whole word GMO sort of illustrates what kind of unified, much more unified front. But it's... There's not a worldwide consensus on this yet, at least not from regulatory
0: standpoint. It's a pretty tough one. It's pretty like complicated conversations. And do you see now that since the regulations are so different in different parts of the world, that the the research is going the places where the where there are fewer regulations? So like in the places where you're able to use CRISPR in food, is that where the, the most, you know, there's more science happening there so that those areas will keep kind of moving further ahead in terms of technology?
1: Yeah, it could be. It could happen. Um, already, Europe, a number of European scientists are saying that they're going to move their lab outside, of, their laboratories outside of Europe. You know, we'll see. It, it's the, the argument seems similar to the ban in the United States back, like, almost, 18 years ago on embryonic stem cell research, and that forced a number of researchers to leave the United States to, ironically, Europe, where they could continue the research. Yeah, they could see that happening, and that's a real concern in Europe. For research purposes, say, in the United States, if the FDA and the USDA regulate it, that may not affect basic research and academic research directly, but it will slow down and make food production more expensive, any kind of um, CRISPR-involved product, because then you'd have to go through the FDA approval process, or the US, if the USDA changes its mind, does a 180, you have to go through theirs as well. So, but that may not necessarily here affect uh, research, or at least basic research.
0: So kind of putting the sort of like the issue of regulation just to the side if like just to assume for a second it, it was legal everywhere what's your feeling about sort of like the general public's perception of edited food right since you know GMO has its own baggage that for whatever reason a lot of people kind of don't trust it or don't want it um, are you seeing the same th- the same kinds of things with crispr like is the public kind of open to the idea of having their food be edited
1: I think there are two directions going. One, I think most of the members of the public haven't heard of CRISPR. They don't know what you're talking about. So, and frankly, there are huge swaths of the general public who don't really, they hear the word GMO, but they don't know that you're talking about transgenics. You know, people don't think about plant breeding and it's still a relatively small, but wealthy and vocal part of the population that have heard of all this and CRISPR hasn't quite captured a public mind yet that the word GMO has come out with the transgenics never really caught much public attention. You know, people don't think about plant breeding every day. This is just with food. You're talking about drugs. Nobody thinks about it at all. Yeah. Public perception I kind of read is still kind of out there. There's a lot of it depends on who is out there willing to sway public opinion. Together, there are people who have been activists and working for the organic food industry, for natural products manufacturers, you know, that these are people representing an eighty billion dollar a year business. And they have been instrumental in orchestrating a lot of the the original resistance to genetic modification you're starting to see some of that being mobilized against CRISPR, but not with the same consistency that you saw with transgenics. I think a lot of people are looking at it and realizing that they're not quite the same thing. And some of the issues with not introducing a foreign strip, a sequence of DNA into another organism kind of negates a lot of the original arguments against there. I think now you could probably say for the public's point, it's still kind of a clean slate. And I think scientists and uh, farms, agribusiness, the pharmaceutical industry could kind of benefit from gearing up and directing, you know, involving the public in some more of these discussions about whether there's a moral or religious or um, ethical problem with introducing
2: this. Right. I think it's very interesting in general what you said about including the public because one of the I guess in July USDA was considering you know renaming uh, instead of GMO if the labeling should be something else because exactly like you said that a lot of people might be opposed to GMO not necessarily because of uh, ethics but simply because they are scared and they don't know what exactly this means and just the term GM food or GMO food has now become notorious although not everyone might essentially understand what goes in there or what exactly happens in there. So, an interesting study on this point was by a researcher in Vermont who just was investigating whether actually labeling the food changes public perception or not but they actually found that if they do put in descriptive labels even with gmos on the food products people are actually open to it so maybe the whole thing is more about you know just including them and making sure that whether it's CRISPR or any kind of genetic engineering it's just clarified what exactly has been done to those products and then maybe as you said public might actually be more open to it because they would just know better what's in their food right Mm-hmm.
1: I think that that definitely all plays in. And yeah, whether, how many people actually read labels, you have to kind of wonder. And there worked with the FDA and the USDA, trying to figure out a new label for all genetic modification, you know, one of the first things that a number of organic activists wanted to have, they wanted to have a death set. They wanted to have skull and crossbones on the thing. And they got upset because the FDA and, and others said, no, we're absolutely not doing that. So some of the more politically active players in this area know the power of symbolism and they know that people aren't really reading, but they know if you put a skull and crossbones on something, they're not going to, you know, they're just going to shy away from it. There's also another area where if you were seeing traits now that have more to do with direct improvements in the quality of the food, whether it's making a sweet or strawberry, a non-browning potato or apple, things that, whereas before, you were dealing with things that were of benefit to farmers. So you have Roundup ready. A, you know, corn, wheat, cotton, that corn or soy that can resist uh, glyphosate, the, the herbicide. So you can apply glyphosate before you grow your crop, and it'll kill the weeds, but won't kill anything that uh, has been genetically engineered to to resist glyphosate. That's not something that is going and it's hitting the consumer directly. It's hitting indirectly. You, know, you produce more corn, you increase your yield, you can corns cheaper in the store. But that's not the same thing as ooh, this tastes better than that, or this one is going to sit on my shelf for longer, and I don't have to throw out as much food. So i think now we're starting to see some products coming more to di- brought directly in front of the consumer's face which really wasn't happening before
0: right so it's kind of like a difference between like f- food that's now more healthy or tastes better versus kind of changes that can just help a company make more money
1: mm-hmm. yeah
0: yeah
2: i think it's been really interesting to know all these uh different points about AgBio, but what are the other applications or any particular uh, CRISPR applications that come to mind which would be most impactful?
1: I think anything that can enhance nutrition or resist certain diseases is going to be incredibly valuable. If it can improve shelf life and prevent, improve uh, storage, especially in areas of the developing world. And I think a lot, most direct and dramatic improvements will probably happen more in the developing world, at least for now. As long as food remains cheap by industrialized standards, and their use, you will start seeing a number of dramatic changes that can really affect people's quality of life and do it quickly. I and mean, whether it's you know preventing banana wilt, it's improving uh, brinjal, eggplant um, in Bangladesh and or India. I mean, you're already seeing some of that happening with transgenics, but CRISPR might kind of grease this kids make it easier make the edits more precise and maybe make it a little cheaper the developed world the industrialized world is kind of cruising on a luxury liner at this point because we're enjoying a very cheap safe and ample food supply for the most part you know but there's no reason to assume that that could last forever and as food starts becoming more expensive and some of these luxuries is cheap apples or cheap corn syrup or vitamin C that you can just pull off the shelf for pennies on the dollar that might start to go away and then somebody starts looking at alternatives and say hey you know thanks to some of these genetic modifications as CRISPR and, and or any of the others we can provide something ultimately at a lower price that you can still use that could be a little different I mean I think one of the More, Most interesting areas and one that might even create some more ethical arguments down the road is the concept of gene drive, where you just take CRISPR applications, but you're entering into the germline, which means so you can essentially upend classical Mendelian genetics and just say, well, we're now going to take whatever favorite gene or whatever favorite allele and pass it down through several generations at once and either enhance or sometimes in cases where it's being used now with mosquitoes, for example, you could eliminate a species. That creates a whole lot of new and, I think, questions that really deserve a lot of public input and a lot of public discussion before they're widely adapted. And that argument, in some ways, may create some models for how more benign somatic cell alterations are are accepted and, and introduced as as well
0: yeah i think that the last point you made like the idea of using crispr for um these like homing gene drives is probably one of the most interesting applications to me i think you know it can yeah literally in a short amount of time eradicate a really devastating disease like malaria i mean and that's would be extremely impactful, and it's such a huge problem. We don't see it every day here in this country, but you know, worldwide, yeah, it's a, it's a huge one.
1: Yeah, and we could see malaria in this country. If things get warmer, I mean, you're already seeing a couple of, you know, a few isolated cases that come in, in warmer areas on the border, southern border, and they're thanks to global travel, there's no reason why something couldn't come in. And Kevin Esvelt, who's at, at Harvard, he was, he's almost like a, a one-man researcher and ethicist. Do the research and talk about, hey, I think this is really promising. But at the same time, hey, we need to take a stop. We need to take a breather and take a look at this and see what kind of ethical issues and public issues are being involved there. But yeah, that one is that one's
0: a wild one. <laughs> yeah, we really like his approach to science. Like, he's the sort of idea that since the environment is shared amongst all of us, then everyone should basically have a say in what we do to it or what scientists do to it. And I mean, that approach with like transparency and being open with the community, talking about what the science him and his, his group are working on, like making sure everyone in the community is, is clear on it, that's, I think that's great. It's like kind of a, a model that I hope that more people can kind of follow in the future. Mm -hmm. Genome engineering and CRISPR is kind of starting to become part of our everyday lives, you know, is becoming part of the foods we eat, and I think it'll be impactful in in more areas in the very near future. I'd be interested to hear, what's one of the most unusual or sort of unexpected applications of CRISPR? Um,
1: I think some of the most unusual ones, I think, involve with some of these people who think they can revive extinct species. So you could engineer enough of a genome, I'm looking at one where somebody was talking about the passenger pigeon. You know, there used to be billions of them in the East Coast and Central part of the United States, and I think the last one died in 1914 or just around World War I, I think. So now there's an idea going about that might be able to use CRISPR to introduce the species, sort of de-extinct something that could revive different animals through a selection, I guess, of crossbreeding with living pigeons that are close what are genetically close to the passenger pigeon. You know, same idea with the woolly mammoth, or the saber-toothed tiger. <laughs> that just, it could be in the realm of, uh, of wild fantasies, although people are working on the research side, trying to see, like, hey, could this actually work?
0: Yeah, that's definitely interesting.
1: I think some of the promising areas to that are, it's actually started a little after, a little behind food was even looking at Cedars sort of health and pharmaceutical applications. You know There are maybe ways you can tell whether certain breast cancer mutations might be harmless or can create other kinds of problems because once you, if you can really precisely know understand the gene expression and how that leads to tumor formation you might be able to tweak a number of steps along that process and i think that has some dramatic potential and in some ways more public acceptance as well
0: yeah i mean it's really true CRISPR has basically it has the potential to redefine what medicine is, right? We can move from treating mm-hmm. symptoms to actually curing a disease and maybe even sort of like eradicating like things like cancer or moving in that direction.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can start using RNA as well as DNA and as possible. And if you can really target a precise areas of a genome that are pathogenic or at least helping to introduce pathogenesis from another source um, that can create some really traumatic differences. Like you said, you're actually curing a disease and eliminating it and possibly reducing some of the side effects and uh, adverse effects that we see with even traditional drugs today.
0: Andrew, I just want to thank you for joining us today. It was really a pleasure speaking with you. What's the best way for um, any of our listeners to contact you if they have any questions or just are interested in speaking with, with you more about any of these topics?
1: My handle is uh, at a m porterfield. Uh, that's A uh m in Mary Porterfield on Twitter. And I'll look at that a lot and you can either, either go to me directly there or you can send me a message. And I'm on there several times
2: a day. All right. Great. Thanks a lot for joining us today. And thank you all for listening.
1: Great. Well, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to CRISPR
0: cuts. I invite you to check out the Synthego blog, The Bench, for more great CRISPR content. Please send us any feedback you have by contacting us on Twitter. And if you want to join in as a guest on our podcast, email us at crisprcuts at synthego.com. CRISPR cuts is a scientific podcast by Synthego. Produced by Kevin, Minu, and me, Bobby. Additional production by Resonate Recordings. Our cover art is by Jeff Merrick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.